As you know, we stopped in the last hour as we were looking at Psalm 22, verse 1. And we're going to continue that now as we pick it up again. So let's read verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? We made mention that these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are him speaking as he was hanging upon the cross there on Calvary. We also made mention that this is in reference to his God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is my God here that he is speaking to. The next thing we notice that there are three questions that are set forth, really two with one extra one there, but three altogether, I guess you'd say, that are presented in this text. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? So we want to begin looking at these things now as we continue on in our sermon. You notice, as I mentioned there, he prefaces these questions with this phrase, my God, my God. Now, there has been much what I would call speculation by those as to why he would be using these terms, my God, my God, and not why he would not say my father or my father God or whatever the case may be. But he doesn't tell us here directly as to why we would do so. We do know that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that God is his father. So really, there's no discrepancy in this. There's no nothing wrong with our Lord using the term my God here at all. So uh, to me, that's not really kind of an issue as some have made it out to be. I could be wrong, but to me, it seems like it would be just as legit to call him my God as it would be to call him his heavenly father in this place. Our Lord, even in the midst of his great sufferings, knew here, though, who he was addressing. We made mention earlier that for three hours that we're aware of, there was no noise. There was nothing coming from the Son of God. No words whatsoever that are written down. And it is here that the silence is broken when he cries out, My God and my God. So he knows to whom he is speaking. He knows that in the midst of all of his agonies, in the midst of all of his trials and troubles, and the wrath of God being poured out upon him, he still is able to recognize that God is his God. That this was a prayer to him. The second thing I want us to notice is the phrase, which would be the first question here, is why hast thou forsaken me? Well, deep, and I would say, and mysterious certainly, as these words may be, there are some things we can say about these past, this passage, and there are some things which we know that it does not mean. So let's look, first of all, for the things that we could say that these words do not mean when he said here to his father, why hast thou forsaken me? The first thing he would say is that we know here that when he uttered these words, he was not ceasing to be God himself. We do not believe here in the midst of his agonies, 
that God, Jesus Christ ceased to be God at all. He was still divine as He was hanging there on the cross. Even as He was suffering the divine wrath of God Himself, He was still Almighty God hanging upon that cross. Secondly, nor that somehow in His sufferings and in His death, He ceased to be both God and man in one person. In other words, that union that was sustained there did not dissolve at all. He was still God manifest in the flesh at that point of His sufferings and even at His death. Now again, that's mysterious, isn't it? But again, isn't that what the text tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16? Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. So whatever we may conceive about Jesus and who He was and how He existed as the God-man, there is still some deep mystery to it that you and I will probably never be able to fathom in this life, and I dare say even in the life to come. Because we're not going to be God in heaven. We will still be human, very much human in heaven, yet without sin. So that union between God and man was not dissolved in his sufferings. Nor do I believe that this question arises from from some sort of a confusion in the mind of our Lord Jesus at this point. Now, it's true. He was going through much anguish and much sorrow and much adversity and so forth, an anguish of heart. But he still knew what was going on. He still knew who he was. He knew that he was God manifest in the flesh. He knew that he had a job to do. So it's not here in the midst of his pain and his sufferings that he forgot what his mission was and that why he came here upon earth and why he was going through the things that he was going through. There wasn't some great confusion in his mind regarding all these things. And what he was going and what he was actually accomplishing there upon the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 tells us, Looking unto the Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. That doesn't sound like to me that he was confused about any of this. That somehow he was deranged in his thinking. No. He, he was full, fully understanding what was going on in his mind. Nor does this cry that we find in verse 1 give us a hint at all that Jesus somehow was helpless upon the cross. That He was helpless. That while He was on the cross, that He somehow lost all of His strength. But in reality, you see, he was still Almighty God. He was still God manifested in the flesh. He was still all-powerful. 
You know, when he laid aside his glory, he was still Almighty God. And as he was hanging there on the cross, he was still God Almighty, possessing all power and might. As we've been discussing there in Hebrews chapter 1, like last week and the week before, you remember that this was Jesus who is the Creator and who is the sustainer of all things. And He was there, still that on the cross. We talked about how that the very angels were created and sustained by God. That is Jesus Christ. They were empowered by Jesus Christ. And those very angels in which He created, He could have easily have called upon them to have taken Him up off the cross. But He did not. Remember what He said to Peter in Matthew 26 and verse 53. Well, did I write that down? No, I didn't. Okay. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53. Here Jesus is in the, cro- uh, in the garden and the soldiers have come to take Him and Peter was being a little rambunctious here and Peter is ready to take out his sword and to kill and to defend. And Jesus said in verse 53, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father and He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? So you see, none of that was missing in our Lord. Nor was he powerless himself to do so. And the proof of that is in three days he's going to raise himself from the grave. You remember the scripture tells us that they mocked him, as we read a few moments ago in Matthew 27. He says, Likewise also the chief priests mocking him and the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus could have done that. He wasn't going to do it. But he could have done it. He had the power to do so. Even as he was suffering upon the cross. Fourthly, these words do not convey in any sense that that would remove from him any real attribute of his humanity. He was, as we said a while ago, he was still man. And he carried all of those things about him that made him to be a man. He was a man. They are hanging on the cross. And what God the Father saw in him as a man was still true. He was still the darling of his Father's eye. Hebrews 5 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up, Prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. 
and was heard and that he feared. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now those are some of the things in which this phrase here does not convey to us. And I have to say it's harder to tell us what it does mean than what it does not mean here. Now some of you may be sitting here, well, I've got it figured out. Well, bless you, we are so, we are so honored to have someone here that has this kind of knowledge. We really are. But I don't. I don't. This is a hard passage. If you think about it, what does that mean? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, the first thing I would say that it does mean is that it was real. Just as real as his death. It was real, it was actual. What our Lord said here, whatever it may convey, He meant it. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He did go through this. He was forsaken of the Father in some sense or other. The second thing we can say is that He really suffered in these things. The pains of the crucifixion were horrible. And our Lord Jesus experienced them. He experienced every single pain of that. Whatever was going through His system at that moment as a human being, it was happening, just as it would happen to every single one of us, including the death of the cross. So all of those sufferings His body went through, just like in just a few hours, He's going to expire and die as the God-man. Not that His divine died, but His humanity. This is not denying either that on the cross, His hands and His feet, when they pierced Him, He really felt those things. Yes, He did. The pain of such things, he felt it all. All the pain that he went through, he endured. Just as before, when they, at his trial, when the chief priests and the Roman soldiers were picking on him and beating him and slapping him and scourging him and mocking him, all of those things were real to him and he felt them. Every single one of them. Every blow that came upon him, he felt it. Just as surely as if we were to strike one of ourselves this morning. What these words signify was that our Lord Jesus took our sins upon him and his soul was made an offering for sin. God the Father laid upon him our sins And that judicial penalty that because of sin and what it brings, it came upon him. Our sins were imputed to him, you remember. And we'll get into more of that a little bit here in a moment. But as a man, 
that was his desertion that God gave to him was what sin merited. Whatever that desertion may have been, when God the Father, as it were, turned his eyes away from his son and given him no comfort and no help at this time, that's what sin deserved. And as the Lord Jesus was made sin for us, he got what he deserved. And I say that reverently. His human soul in that hour suffered that desertion from his God that sin deserved. God, as it were, hid his face from his son, the man Christ Jesus. You know, they, that happens to us, though not in the same extent. But you remember Psalms 10, verse 1, where it says, Why standest thou far off, O Lord? Why hidest thyself in times of trouble? God's presence isn't there, is it? In the way that we want, in the comfort and the help and the succor that's there. Christ got none of that. He got what sin deserved, you see, as He was made sin for us. All of this our Lord experienced. His human soul lost that, as it were, the presence of God with him. That sweet assurances and so forth. He sensed the divine wrath upon him. Because after all, his soul was made an offering for sin. And that's as far as I know how to go with that. Let's look now to the second question. Why art thou so far from helping me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And again, we could play the game and say, well, we know this is what it didn't mean, and we know what this could have meant. But this shows us something further here, I believe, of the forsaking that God the Father did towards his son. In other words, this is kind of an explanation of it, I believe, a little bit more further. What did he do here? Well, obviously, he says, thou art far from helping. He gave Jesus no help. This was all on his own. He's, he hung there without the power of God, as it were, from his father being that great help to him. He turned from his prayer. See, before that, God always heard him. Yet now, God is far from helping him at this point. You see, Jesus must tread the wine press alone, as someone said. No one else could do it for him. No one else did it with him. He was alone there on the cross. Only him. He must not have the help. He must do it all by himself. And our Lord Jesus knew this. In John chapter 12, verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Then let us notice the third question. And from the words of my roaring. This is really kind of an expansion of the words that he just spoke there, which we often do as we pray and as we call upon God. It's just not one time, a one-liner, and that's it. Do we not oftentimes embellish our prayers? Not that we think it'll be heard better, but we, it just comes out of us. 
We just say more and more. And this is what our Lord's doing here. And from the words of my roaring. The word roaring here means a deep, solemn groan. It means a cry of distress, like a scream. Someone's screaming that they're in trouble, having adversity or something. The image is likened to the roaring of a large wild beast, like a lion, and that's often has this given in the scripture, who is suffering some great agony or some severe wound, and it roars out. I mean, a lion can roar loudly, even when it's not hurt. Where we used to live, I don't think we've heard them at our house now, maybe I'm wrong about that, but where we used to live just a few blocks away, over on Orlane Street, we could hear the lion's roar over there in Gage Park. In the evening or whatever, you'd be sitting outside, you could hear the roar of the lion. So, and they weren't in trouble. They were on Easy Street over there in the zoo. They were very well fed and taken care of and all that. There was no distress upon them. But boy, their roaring was loud. What must it be like? When it's in pain, when it's suffering some great agony, and then it roars out. This is what our Lord Jesus has been doing. We mentioned a while ago, remember, he's the almighty God hanging upon the cross. And he's not hanging here as some weakling, is he? You know. Barely being able to get the words out because of the great agony that he's suffering. No! He roars like a hurt lion here, does he not? But God's not listening at this point. It's the same thing down in verse 13. They gape upon me with their mouths and as a ravening and a roaring lion. I don't think they were just passing by and just sat up, you know, that kind of thing. They were yelling at the Lord, screaming at Him, mocking Him. And He's able to return that sort of thing. Not that He was returning that, because when He was about, He reviled not again, the Scripture says. Remember that? That's what that's talking about. I believe it had to do that day on the cross that He was crying out when He says that in First Peter. Again, the passage we read a while ago, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him. Job says in chapter 3 and verse 24, For my sighing cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like the waters. David tells us that his sins as he came to remember them, and as God had punished him for his sins, in other words, chastened him, that David cried out like that as well. He tells us in Psalm 32, verse 3, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Some of us know what it means to be chastening. It's not very pleasant. I guess what the Scripture says, doesn't it? It's not a pleasant thing to be chastened. David didn't find it that way either. It caused him to roar like a lion, just like our Lord here. 
So here is the man of sorrows crying out, and yet at this point, not delivered. Think of the anguish, though, that must have been upon him for him to say these things. To say, why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring and the forsaking of God. What turmoil that must have caused him to cry out in such a state like that. Yet in all of this, our Lord Jesus endured all this. He endured the bitterness that was laid upon him. The cross itself. The wrath of his Father. And his very creatures whom he created mocking and reviling him. The third thing I would like to look at now is let's answer these questions. They're really all the same answer. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Why have you forsaken me? I think we ought to know what the reason for that is. First thing we could say is because it was the purpose and the plan of God to do so. This was no afterthought with God. I think I'll hang my son upon the cross and punish him. No, this was something that was conceived in the eternal counsels of old. Something that was known before the mountains were brought forth, before anything that was ever created. This was something known of old. This was something our Lord Jesus himself was a part of in the agreement. And when the covenant was made and hands were stroked, this was known from all eternity. Remember in the book of Revelation, Jesus is as, is as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So this was something that's in the plan and purpose of God. This is why this had to take place. This is why this is taking place. But secondly, what's the means of it? The wicked hands of those who crucified him. That's why. Remember in the book of Acts, as Peter is preaching there on the day of Pentecost, he's telling those Jerusalem sinners, to coin a word from Mr. Bunyan, of that very thing. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being de delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He's there because men put him upon that cross. He's crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because they put him on the cross. You say, well, how does that work? Is it in God's decree? Now, I, I don't know. I just know it does. The Bible teaches both. Why not believe in both? And then the third reason is because of sin. Sin. Our <clears throat> sins. Not his, but ours. Yours, mine, 
every believer that has ever lived and ever will live, their sins are the reason why Christ is suffering. It is the reason why his father turned his back upon his son on the cross. It is the reason why his, that God was far from helping him. And why his words were as like a roaring lion. It was because of our sins. You see, our Lord didn't go through these things for his own doing. Because again, he was the sinless, perfect son of God. He was accursed, you see, not for himself, but because of our sins, our sakes. He was forsaken because he stood in our stead. He became our surety. He was separated from God at this point in this moment, whatever that may mean, because he bore our sins on the cross. He was not helped because he had to atone for our sins. The sins of his people. You see, there would be no forgiveness this morning if Christ was not have been forsaken. If God would have heard his cry and answered him, there would have been no forgiveness. Think of that. No forgiveness. It would have disrupted everything. Think of it. The eternal plan of God going to naught, which of course would have never happened. But think about it. If it would have, what would it have done? What would it have said about the eternal counsels of God? It would have turned it into Arminianism, sure as I don't know what. Because that's what they do. That's their theology. There would be no forgiveness. You see, he's there because our sins were laid on him. We should have been there. We should have been one crying out. But instead, he did it for us. You see, he was bearing the sins of his people. You remember John the Baptist? Seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The world of the elect. His people. That's why. Think what an experience, personal experience, that must have been to the soul of Jesus Christ. We talked about a while ago how that, you know, his body, all of that touched it. That he felt every bit of the pain and anguish and sorrow, all of that was real to him, just as it would have been real to us. But think of this fact as well. That the sinless Son of God experienced something that had never happened before. And that our sins were imputed to Him. That He, again, being very careful with the wording here, that He became sin for us who knew no sin. What must his soul have been like with that knowledge? You know, as it was said of, to Adam and to Eve, I guess more so, you know the difference between good and evil. 
Jesus did that hour. He had our sins laid upon Him. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. What must that have been like for that weight of sin upon that sinless soul? Can you imagine it? I can't. And it was for my sin and for yours, believer. What new sensation, if I may call it that, that is sensing it, that he must have experienced. We, and we know he did. Because we know that he, he had, again, all those human feelings that we have, all those human emotions, if you want to call them that, affections that we have. He could be sad. He could be happy. He could be despondent, I suppose. He knew what it meant to be hungry. Think of that. Son of man, hungry. Son of God, hungry. He knew what it meant to be tired, wearisome. He knew what it meant to sleep. He knew what it meant to wake up. He knew all those things, you see, because he was man. And he knew it because he was God. But there was a sense in which he experiences it as man. That's what makes him such a great high priest, you see. He can be touched with our infirmities. Saved without sin. You see, all those human things we know, he knew. Except for any personal committing of sin. That he did not know. Because he'd never done it. No, it's God. He knows all things. I'm not saying that at all. But he never had that experience of committing sin. But sin was laid to his charge that day. Our sins are imputed to him. And it was as if he did. And that's why he was punished. That's why he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? And then he was punished. To undergo all those sufferings and pain of his father's displeasure. His soul being made that offering for sin. The great agony of all of that. Any wonder then he would say, my God, my God. It's not a what it's we may not understand the words, but we would certainly say, Well, I can see why he'd say that. All of that. All of that. The Bible tells us that David tells us that a body had been prepared for him in Psalm 40, I believe it is. Prepared him for this. For this very thing. All the things, yes, that went before, no doubt. But it was for an offering and a sacrifice for sin that his body was made for. And that body for 33 years or so experienced what the Bible tells us it did. And then it experienced this awful day in which he suffered for sin. Well, let me make just a brief application or two on this. 
You know, all of this can become old hat to us that Christ has suffered. It can't. That's why the preaching of the cross is such a blah thing to many. But it should not to be added. I suppose if you and I had went through all of this, we would remember it, would we not? You know, we're so dumb and feelingless at times as far as the gospel is concerned. God had to give us the Lord's table to help us to remember that. It's a memorial, my friend. A memorial. A remembrance of the death of Christ. So we need that? Yeah, we need that. We need to think about it. We need to hear the gospel preached so that we won't forget. Remember the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are to keep it in memory. And one of the means of that is through the preaching of the cross. But it can become old hat. But Think about this. There's no other way, my friend, that God could have put away sin but by this act. I'm not one of those thinking God could have sovereignly put it away. I don't believe that. I know there's been divines a lot smarter than me that say that. But I can't believe, I I have that hard to believe that there could be another way. I think this is the only way that God would be appeased. You know, 1 John tells us that God... Christ was sent into this world to be a propitiation for our sins, to appease God, to satisfy God's wrath and to satisfy His law. He is that propitiation. There's no other way. And we ought to then hold these things near and dear to us as the salvation of our souls. And for those this morning who believe not, how ridiculous is your plight? There's no other hope than this. There's no other way than this. That Jesus Christ is sent forth as a sacrifice for sin. No other way. Not by your works. Not by anything you can do. Or not do for that matter. It's the sacrifice of Christ. There's no pardon. There's no forgiveness from God. But only through Christ and Christ alone. Then secondly... We as Christians at times feel, at least in a measure, this desertion or a desertion from God. Remember that psalm I quoted a while ago. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thyself in the times of trouble? Don't we feel that way sometimes? Well, there's been one who has, and it's not talking of David now, but it's Christ. He had the ultimate forsaking. That he was forsaken for us. So that we would not be forsaken forever. And what an example that is for us. Not only in salvation, but to realize this is not forever. Those small seasons of God's withdrawing himself from us for whatever reason, they're not forever. It's a short time in comparison. 